0: Hello, and thank you for joining the first Trading the Transition podcast. I'm Robert Campbell with Energy Aspects, and I'm joined by my colleagues Ridoy Rashid, Trevor Sikorsky, Matt Parry, and Varendra Trahan. And we're going to discuss some of our latest research in the transition field and uh, the long-term outlook for energy and uh, supply and demand. Uh, I mean, the first, you know, the, the the broad auspices of our Trading the Transition service, I mean, we have sort of three core views. Uh, One is underinvestment adds upside risk to oil and gas prices. Um, Regardless of the pace of EV uptake, we're still seeing quite a lot of hydrocarbon demand into the 2030s and uh, a real mismatch that's emerging between uh, production and and demand. Uh, We see intensifying competition for limited low carbon fuel supply, and I'll touch a bit on this in the biofuel segment in a bit. Um, and probably one of the last things, and this is something Trevor can really el- elaborate on is how fragmented carbon markets are clouding some of the price signals. So without that, I'll just, uh, drop in and, and, and cover a few things here, but, you know, ultimately what we are seeing is a market that's very much groping towards some sort of, some sort of sustainable transition strategy, but really still lacking in scale uh to tackle the problem and so to get a bit more into the policy details i'd like to uh, introduce my colleague ridoy rashid
1: thanks rob um and important if quite scary reality about the energy transition is, despite all the kind of rhetoric and headlines we see, the world isn't on track to meet its targets in limiting emissions. Um, Even if countries do follow through with current commitments, emissions in 2030 will be almost double the 26 gigatons uh, they need to be uh, in order to be consistent with a 1.5 degree uh, pathway. Uh, But despite kind of doubts about the pace, the transition is happening and we expect significant effects in some key markets. Looking at oil, for example, global demand growth will slow, but demand still rises to a peak in the early 2030s, uh, supported primarily by PETCHEMS and aviation. Um, and the demand story also has regional differences. Uh, so, persistent growth in Asian demand will offset declines in, in North America and Europe through the 2020s. But looking to the supply side, uh, we're also seeing, we're already seeing kind of large reductions in, in upstream capex, which will dense supplies. Uh, concentrated in in conventional non-OPEC long before we see uh, those demand reductions kick in. For natural gas, the effects of the transition are likely to hit a bit later, uh, with demand growth maintaining in the US and Europe, uh, while supply growth persists uh, despite kind of coal retirements and and gains for renewables and power generation. Uh, In carbon markets, we, we see the EUA market uh, remaining structurally uh, bullish, uh, given the kind of challenging targets set out in the Fit for 55 regulations, uh, whilst the growth in, in gas demand will, will add further upward pressure on, on carbon prices. Um, now, looking at like, the, the, the regional implications of uh, decarbonisation, uh, one trend we want to highlight is, is the different types of decarbonisation required. Uh, for example, in China, uh, which emits kind of large emissions from coal, uh, while in the US, emissions from coal have already been declining. Uh, which has been achieved through the substitution of of natural gas. Uh, countries like China and, and India, uh, which have a large coal base, do have the opportunity to to reduce power-based emissions, particularly by switching to to natural gas in the shorter run. Uh, while the rollout of, of low carbon electricity continues. And this underscores a point that we want to make on liquids. Um, you know, if we want to decarbonize the West, we'll need to see reductions in oil consumption, um, and governments need to prepare the market to, to accept higher-cost alternative fuels, such as biofuels, um, in larger quantities. Uh, and with that, I'll, I'll pass on to my colleague Matt Parry, uh, our Head of Long-Term Forecasting, to, to take us through the oil demand story in a little bit, little bit more depth. Thanks, ridoi So the key takeaway um, that Riloy touched
2: on is that global liquid demand will continue rising over the next decade. Basically because the supportive influence from expanding emerging market demand remains larger than the downside applicable to increased electrification and the beginnings of the energy transition. Crucially, um, we don't think global liquid demand will peak until the early 30s. Looking at the whole time period, we've got a net gain of around 9 million barrels per day forecast in global liquid demand between 2021 and 2030. Although this is a little bit um, kind of thrown off by the size of the 2022 post-COVID rebound. So if you look at the 2019 or the pre-COVID period to 2030, the gain is 7 million barrels per day. Now, most of this comes from Asia, particularly non-OECD Asia, which so the total Asia region is going up 8 million barrels per day. And emerging markets in general are all forecast to rise with Africa, Latin America, the Middle East and the FSU all posting strong gains and that is because, you know, they have a very low level of per capita demand, um, they have stronger economic growth, our in-house models for macroeconomics are stronger for the OECD than they are for the OECD and also have stronger population supports. And this is why we have non-OEC demand rising and OEC demand declining, because in OECD markets, there's weaker economic growth, often declining population numbers and a very satiated level of consumption. So the moves towards EVs have some effect there. Um, For example, in India, per capita demand is 15.5 times lower than the US. And the GDP models we have running have Indian GDP averaging 6.4% per annum, versus just 2.3% for the US. So it's an incredibly supportive backdrop to the demand picture. Once you strip past the sort of energy transition, EV story, there's still lots and lots of support for emerging market demand. Taking this same kind of story and just digging onto the road transport side, for example, India has 23 cars per 1,000 people, where the US has over 650. So you can see there's a huge, vast dichotomy that exists. So the big sectors that support this continued rise, and it's it's on a sort of regional basis, but it's pet chems. So of the 7 million addition we've got globally, pet chems is going up by 2.7 million barrels per day. That's between 2019 and 2030. And aviation, which goes up by 1 million barrels per day. And then road transport, which is also quite a big gain. It goes up at 2.7 million barrels per day. But in percentage terms, this is much smaller because the road transport's long dominated liquid demand. So 2.7 million barrels per day addition there is, is in percentage terms much smaller than Pechems. So we have road transport um per capita, sorry, road transport um demand growth averaging about 0.5% per year, whereas it's nearer 2% for Pechems and 1.2% for aviation. Because of this kind of sector specific growth so the pet comes in aviation it's very hard to switch out of liquids you can switch out of liquids but there's huge additional costs and as we're talking about parts of the world where there's incredibly low levels of per capita demand they certainly can't can't embrace additional costs on top of that or otherwise they would have already had the demand so that means we're going to see stronger growth from the likes of lpg ethane naphtha jet kerosene and from road transport, more likely the stronger growth will be on the gas oil, diesel side of things. Because whereas we have EVs coming in and we, we're forecasting that roughly one in three cars will be electric vehicles by 2030, that's car sales. Um, the, the commercial vehicle and bus fleets take much longer to adjust because of range restrictions. So the diesel side of the market takes longer to swing over to, to electric, electricity. Um but crucially, on that, that, that topic where I talked about EV sales going up to about one in three by 2030, it's the fleet that's really important and not the sales. The sales are just the change in the fleet each year, and it's the pre-existing car fleet. And then each year you get the, the new sales, which a growing percentage of which will be electric vehicles, and a declining percentage of which will be gas oil or, or gasoline. But it takes a long time for the fleet to turn over to become anywhere near significantly electric. And even running all of these models across all the different countries, it's one in six by 2030 for the fleet. So it's, it's significant, but it's it's a lot lower than, than you see from just looking at the sales numbers. So tra- extrapolating that back a bit, what what is the impact of that? Well, basically, we're saying that if you didn't sell any more EVs from now, oil demand in 2030 be about three million barrels per day higher. So that's the impact on so we have an oil demand forecast with increased EVs, and we have global liquid demand rising by about seven million barrels per day. But if you didn't have these extra EVs, it would be another three million barrels per day higher. Um so that's really the sort of big, big, big sort of picture in in, in liquids. It's all about Regional differences: so strong non-OECD strong emerging market gains versus modest declines in OECD markets. Sector-specific increases in the likes of aviation, petrochemicals, and to a, you know to a lesser degree in percentage terms road transport. And this supports the products, particularly the lighter products: the LPG, the ethane, the naphtha, the jet fuel.
0: Um, Rob, if you'd like to tell us a bit more about refining, that'd be fantastic yeah i'll touch on refining very quickly and i think the you know the point matt you're making about um you know liquid step demand being so persistent i think is crucial for refining because you just the refineries won't go away while there is liquids demand but of course there are going to be pretty big differences uh you know i mean on the on the numbers we're looking at you could in theory eliminate all the diesel imports into europe uh by the end of the decade uh, because of ev growth and 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 that's going to have tremendous implications for the European refining for instance given how concentrated uh, the EV story will be in europe and 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 the already uh significant amounts of excess capacity that will be created when that happens um the biggest implication really the biggest challenge for the market really is getting to grips with what's happening in China with its refining sector which you know was for the last few years the big supplier of of oil product exports in East Asia, but uh, recent Chinese policy changes appear to be focused on capping refining capacity growth. Um, But even so, there's a lot of capacity still on the books to come on stream and and Europe already absorbs a lot of imports and, and as demand falls in Europe, you will see a structural pressure on European margins build. The other item I need to cover here is biofuels, and it's it's you know it's a popular topic, but in the end, biofuels really only have a small role to play in decarbonization, uh, simply because of feedstock limitations. Um, in fact, you know while we have seen uh, renewable diesel play a growing role in the California market, uh, we are running up against feedstock limitations already. There's only so much used cooking oil available in the world. Uh, Europe already imports a million tons of used cooking oil at quite a high price uh, from Asia Pacific right now every year. And, uh, you know, the market is increasingly going to have to push into more advanced fuels, particularly and if the Fit for 55 uh, proposals for jet fuel, you know, shifting into sustainable aviation fuel happen, uh, we will probably see more advanced biofuel type processes such as waste gasification have to come in to play Uh, toward the end of the decade, and that's going to bring a lot of cost that will need to be absorbed uh, in one way or another by the market. And, you know, that's, in the end, is the story. There is no free lunch here. The market has to do uh, some of the work. And so for that, I'm going to turn the topic over to Trevor uh, and uh, get his views on gas and renewables. Thanks, Rob. Um, Yeah, I
3: mean, a big part of the, uh, the decarbonization pathway is going to be about power. Power is the granddaddy of how it's certainly the Europeans are looking at decarbonization, but globally, I think that's gonna play out a lot. And, And Rob mentioned Fit for 55. And if you look at Fit for 55, it is kind of supportive for gas. In, in the transition period, whereas it do, and it does kind of set an end date where a lot of fossil fuels will have to come out of the market. And that is going to be really, really difficult. And the reason it's so difficult is because we're asking power to do so much and we're asking power to do an enormous amount. We're, we're asking it to help decarbonize uh, transport, particularly in the light vehicle sector. A lot of that will be through electrification. You're looking at a lot of the industrial, pathways uh, for decarbonisation being based around getting hydrogen into uh, into processes where natural gas tends to go. Now, that does feel quite bearish for gas. But of course, uh, a lot of that's either going to be based around blue hydrogen, which requires gas to go in. But predominantly more of it, particularly in the European space, they're really looking at green hydrogen through electrolyzers, And that just has an enormous power impact. So a really, really big power demands. And of course, with those big power demands, yes, you're going to be adding renewables but that's really big. So you're you're going to continuously push things towards power. And at the same time, you're going to look to get rid of the most polluting power sources. So if you're looking at Europe, all but three countries are talking about a phase out of coal fired generation by 2033. Now the, the, the countries that aren't is Germany, that's a 2035. Poland, which is just a laggard, and um, and Bulgaria, which is quite small. So you know you are looking at a massive, massive reduction in coal-fired generation capacity in Europe over that time period. Uh, we're also looking at probably a net loss of nuclear. Nuclear is a very, very aging fleet in Europe, and uh, yes, the French have kind of just rediscovered their love. Of nuclear, but that's going to take a while. And really, we don't expect to see any new reactors, probably uh, from the French, any time before 2033 or 2035. So, these things are going to take a long time. And even if we add an enormous amount of renewables, and we, you know, in our base case, you're talking, uh, you know, to meet targets for 2030, this decade having to average something like 55 gigawatts of new solar and wind capacity every year. To put that in context, over the last decade an aggressive year for adding renewables into, you know, an aggressive decade for adding renewables into Europe, that was about 20 gigawatts. So this is a massive acceleration of how many renewables are going to have to come on board. And even then, you would still say gas demand in power will have to go up uh, just to meet all of the demands that are coming. So gas, it is going to be hard to budget out of the, you know, it is going to be very, very hard to budge gas out of the European market any time before probably about twenty forty, um, and during that time, of course, supply is going to be then the major issue of whether that lags behind growth, which remains strong throughout the transition. And that I'm going to pass through to Virendra and he can talk us through uh, all of the uh, all of the challenges facing the supply side.
4: Thank you, Trevor. Um, so yeah, the global upstream has been a massive beneficiary of the recent turbulence in energy markets. You've seen market prices across the value chain in some places at record highs. And over the past week, we've had the international energy companies as they like to refer to themselves now. They appear to have rolled back the years. You've you've got consolidated industry, sharply reduced cost base prices up across both the upstream and the downstream. And the result was in many cases record cash flows and strong profits across the group and the energy shares have done exceedingly well off the pandemic lows. Yet if you look at what percentage of the S&P 500 is made up of energy, it remains a paltry 3.5%. So Western markets are clearly sending a very strong signal on the energy stance in the future of Western economies. In complete contrast to where I sit in Singapore, where a lot of commodities flow, to serve Asian markets. The focus here is very much on today, rather than philosophizing about what may happen in 2030, 40 or 50, and this is reflected in the various net zero ambitions. So China is a decade later at 2060, and India a decade further, 2070 on their net zero pledges. But in a cyclical and long cycle industry like energy, price matters less than investment flows, And for the past few years, we've seen investment into electricity supplies, supporting some of the comments that Trevor just made there about power markets, has surpassed investment into fuel supplies. And this is where the sticking point is and what underpins our core view on the global upstream, though investments picking up from the 2020-2021 lows, it remains subdued around 35 to 40% below what we were spending in a similar oil price environment to where we are today between 2010 and 2014. And there's clearly going to be implications for this as Western public operators retreat from the industry. The gap is going to be filled from state-owned enterprises and national oil companies who will consolidate market share and therefore pricing power. So it's clear that with demand- not being moderated to the same extent as supply. The price action that we see today has been several years in the making. And how are things going in terms of the energy transition? Well, it's clear that investors remain far from convinced about Western operators, operators' transition plans. They've underperformed for the better part of a decade. In an area where they've accumulated more than a century of experience, i.e. in oil and gas or hydrocarbon production. And now they're trying to convince investors that they're going to be able to deliver returns in areas where they have far less experience, such as in solar and wind electricity generation. And the position could not be starker for the state-owned enterprises in Asia and the Middle East, which will pick up all of the assets that would be at risk of being stranded in the West. So, the takeaway for me is expect more turbulence and high energy prices over the coming years. And on that note, I'll pass back to Trevor to talk on another structural bull market in carbon.
3: Thanks, V. Um, yeah, so an immense, uh, immense differentials globally when you look at carbon prices. And that really is just a function of. Differences in, in ambition and differences in caps. So it's it is it, it's a nice bellwether to look at the carbon markets because they just show where is the world you know where is there really really serious efforts being made at decarbonization and there's very high carbon prices. Against those where there's less. So you know if you look globally, the two highest ca- priced carbon markets in Europe, of course, and in California. So very very aggressive in. Uh, their approach to decarbonization. In the rest of the world, you look at China, that's pricing at about seven. You look at maybe the northeast of the US, that's pricing a lot less as well. So, some very, very big differentials. Those differentials are going to stay because of these prices uh, are not fungible, I mean, they're not arbitrageable, you can't use um, them for compliance uh, outside of their own limited uh, limited markets. So the world's going to retain very, very different carbon prices, uh, and that's all a function of domestic, uh, domestic policies. So on that fragmented note on carbon prices, I'm actually going to kind of pass back to Rob so he can sum up um, all of the key findings we've discussed today.
0: Thanks, Trevor. We're actually uh, looking at one of those markets in uh, the report we'll be publishing later this month uh, on the LCFS in California, which uh, bizarrely for a market with a strong carbon policy has been in decline uh, for the last uh, few months. And so we're going to dig into why that is the case. And and Trevor kind of gave away the story. It's got to do with the um, the scope and the ambition of these things. And so uh, it turns out decarbonization is quite easy when you leave out some carbon intensive, hard to decarbonize sectors such as aviation. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is uh, we have a tremendous amount of challenge ahead of us. Uh, and I think uh, the next year is probably going to bring a lot of the optimism. Uh, the shine of the optimism off the transition story is going to come off. And I think investors are going to start looking a lot more uh, carefully at the stories that people are putting out and the solutions that are being proposed. And the the challenge there will be whether the markets have to rise to meet new ambitions or whether we start to scale things back uh, and accept a very different future. Uh, Thanks to all for joining us and uh, we look forward to hearing your feedback on our service and uh, being in touch the next time around.